A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. Sextain by William Drummond of Hawthornden. The heaven doth not contain so many stars, so many leaves not prostrate lie in woods when autumn's old and boreas sounds his wars. So many waves have not the ocean floods as my rent mind hath torments all the night and heart spends sighs when Phoebus brings the light. Why should I have been partner of the light, who, crossed in birth by bad aspect of stars, have never since had happy day or night? Why was I not a liver in the woods, or citizen of Thetis' crystal floods, than made a man for love and fortune's wars? I look each day when death should end the wars, uncivil wars, twixt sense and reason's light. My pains I count to mountains, meads and floods, and of my sorrow partners make the stars. All desolate I haunt the fearful woods, when I should give myself to rest at night. With watchful eyes I ne'er behold the night, mother of peace, but ah, to me, of wars. And Cynthia, queen-like, shining through the woods, when straight those lamps come in my thought, whose light my judgment dazzled, passing brightest stars, and then mine eyes enile themselves with floods. Turn to their springs again, first shall the floods. Clear shall the sun the sad and gloomy night. To dance about the pole cease shall the stars. The elements renew their ancient wars shall first, and be deprived of place and light, ere I find rest in city, fields, or woods. End these my days, in dwellers of the woods. Take this my life, ye deep and raging floods. Sun, never rise to clear me with thy light. Horror and darkness keep a lasting night. Consume me, care, with thy intestine wars, and stay your influence o'er me, bright stars. In vain the stars, in dwellers of the woods, care, horror, wars I call, and raging floods, for all have sworn no night shall dim my sight.
Last month, Terence Hayes read for us one of his DIY Sestinas, a mind-boggling variation on an already pretty mind-boggling poetic form. So I thought it would be good to look at another Sestina today, a more straightforward and conventional example, so that we can deepen our understanding of the tradition that Terence is responding to and playing with when he does his DIY version. The word sestina comes from sesto in Italian, meaning sixth. A sestina is made up of six stanzas with six lines in each stanza. And at the end of those lines, we find the same six words in every stanza, but the order of the words changes according to a set pattern. So, in the Sestina we've just heard, by William Drummond of Hawthornden, those N-words are stars, woods, wars, floods, night and light, which is why we've just heard them repeating over and over in the poem. Then, at the end of a Sestina, we find an envoy, or envoy, with all six words appearing in a shorter stanza of just three lines. I once heard Seamus Heaney give a lecture where he described the envoy as the end words doing a little lap of honour at the end of the poem. As a verse form named in Italian after the number six, you could say the Sestina has a family likeness to Terzarima, a form based on the number three with interlocking triple rhymes, which we looked at in episodes 21 and 54, with poems by Selena Rodriguez and Percy Bysshe Shelley. But instead of rhymes at the end of each line, the Sestina uses these end words. And the challenge for a poet is to incorporate the end words into a meaningful and coherent poem, somehow making a virtue of the repetition so that it doesn't become boring. And given all this repetition, it's not surprising that the Sestina has often been used to evoke oppressive, claustrophobic or obsessive states of mind. The 19th century French poet Ferdinand de Gramont described it as a reverie in which the same ideas, the same objects, occur to the mind in a succession of different aspects, which nonetheless resemble one another, fluid and changing shape like the clouds in the sky. As far as we can tell, the Sestina originated in 12th century Occitania, in what's now southern France, among the troubadours, who were basically medieval performance poets, composing and singing their own songs, mostly on the themes of courtly love and chivalry. The troubadour credited with inventing the Sestina is our note Daniel, who lived at the end of the 12th century. Although, given that a lot of troubadour forms were based on folk songs, he may well have been elaborating on a previous model he'd found somewhere. And it's certainly possible to see the Sestina as a, as a kind of country dance for words, with those six words lined up like a row of dancers who then go through a set pattern of movements before lining up again and bowing to each other at the end. And just like a country dance, it's possible to perform it quickly and skillfully and joyfully, or to go through the motions and tread on each other's toes in a way that's painful to watch.
The 19th century English poet Edmund Gosse wrote a sestina about Danielle's creation of the sestina. And here's the first stanza. In fair Provence, the land of lute and rose, Arnaud, great master of the law of love, first wrought sestines to win his lady's heart. For she was deaf when simpler staves he sang, and for her sake he broke the bonds of rhyme, and in this subtler measure hid his woe. I'm not really sure I agree with Goss that the Sestina's use of N-words makes it subtler than rhymed poetry. For me, it comes across as pretty unsubtle with all that repetition. But anyway, let's letting that slide... According to Goss, Danielle's motivation in creating such an elaborate form was to win the heart of a lady who was deaf when simpler staves he sang. Which reminds me of the biological theory that the complexity of the human brain and human culture evolved as a kind of mating ritual that got out of hand, with men and women creating ever more elaborate and dazzling cultural artefacts and dinner party repartee in order to attract each other's attention. And there's definitely something of the peacock's tail about the Sestina. It's absurdly overblown and impractical, but at the same time, it's undeniably arresting. So there is a romantic explanation for the origin of the Sestina, but there's also a professional one. Troubadours were a competitive bunch, always vying to outdo each other with their artistry, and there were high-profile troubadour contests with big prizes. So it's not hard to see the complexity of the Sestina as a strategy for outdoing your rival, who may well have rocked up to the troubadour slam with a less elaborate verse form. And... It's no surprise that Arnaud Daniel turned out to be a real poet's poet, admired and praised by his fellow writers long after his poems and songs had faded from popular memory. Dante includes Daniel in his Purgatorio, where he describes him as Emilio Fabro, the best blacksmith or craftsman. And we've just heard Edmund Goss's description, our note, great master of the law of love. A few years after Goss, Ezra Pound was translating Daniel's verse and describing him as the greatest poet of all time. So we can imagine how chuffed Pound must have been when he saw the dedication of T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland. For Ezra Pound, Emilio Fabro. And this mixture of competitiveness and mutual backslapping is relevant to the Sestina because one criticism of the form is that it's a poet's poem in the negative sense, where the formal and technical challenges take precedence over the actual effect of the poem on normal people when they read it or listen to it. So it's probably appropriate that there is more than one poet vying for the honour of having written the first Sestina in English. The first one to be printed in English was part of an eclogue in Edmund Spencer's Shepherd's Calendar, published in 1579. Although it's possible that the Sestinas in Sir Philip Sidney's Arcadia were written before Spencer's, even though they were published later. However, 
a lady called Elizabeth Woodville, who happened to be Queen of England as the wife of Edward IV, turns out to have written a kind of Sestina way back in the 15th century, which only survives in a single manuscript. Her poem was a variation on the Sestina, with seven lines per stanza instead of six. The extra line came from repeating the first line of every stanza as the last line of the same stanza. And the first six lines of the first stanza provided the first lines of each subsequent stanza, which are, of course, repeated at the end of each stanza. <laughs> so, if you're feeling a bit confused by now, that's normal. It's probably even intentional. The Sestina is clearly designed to dazzle. And right from the very first ones written in English, we see poets playing with the form, bending the rules in order to display their virtuosity. That was certainly the case with Philip Sidney, whose Arcadia includes a double Sestina, one after the other, using the same six end words throughout. And it has been noted that nobody seems to have written a Sestina in English for about 250 years after Sidney, <laughs> perhaps because they were intimidated by his example. But then in the 19th century, a few poets, including Goss and Algernon Swinburne, picked up on the form and started playing with it. And it became seriously popular in the 20th century, where it became a staple exercise in creative writing courses, and Sestinas were written by major poets, including Ezra Pound, W.H. Auden, Elizabeth Bishop, Weldon Keyes, Seamus Heaney, and John Ashbery. But for today's episode, I thought it would be nice to look at a poem from the early days of the English Sestina. I was tempted to do the Elizabeth Woodville one. It is a brilliant variation on the form, but I decided it wouldn't really help me explain a form based on six-line stanzas if I used an example with seven-line stanzas. Then I thought maybe I'll do the Spencer or the Sydney. And, you know, both the Shepherd's Calendar and the Arcadia contain some excellent Sestinas, and they are also great examples of Renaissance pastoral a genre that depicts humans living in an ideal state of harmony with nature, with lots of meadows and gardens and shepherds and nymphs and so on. But I've already featured Sydney fairly recently in episode 58, and I'm obviously going to do Spencer's Fairy Queen at some point, so I decided to find another poet. And what did I find nestling near Sydney and Spencer in the Renaissance pastoral garden but this memorable piece by the Scottish poet William Drummond of Hawthornden? Unfortunately for Drummond, <laughs> these days he's better known for his hospitality than his poetry. His most famous work is a record he made of his conversations with the poet and playwright Ben Jonson when Jonson came to visit him in Scotland for three weeks. According to the critic Michael Schmidt, Jonson stayed long enough to drink Drummond's wine cellar dry, which probably accounts for the juiciness of his gossip and the harshness of some of his opinions of other writers, as recorded for posterity by Drummond. 
So Drummond is a great source of literary gossip from the period, but he was also a very learned and skillful poet in his own right, as I think today's poem, Sextain, demonstrates. His use of classical references and ornate syntax with lots of inversions as well as poetic diction make it clear that he was writing with an educated audience in mind. So we can probably see what Ben Jonson meant when he told Drummond that his verses were too much of the schools and were not after the fancy of the time. In other words, they were a bit old-fashioned, even in the 17th century. But it's to Drummond's credit that he faithfully recorded this criticism of his own work, and I do think this is an impressive poem. So, the scenario is pretty straightforward. The speaker of the poem, who sounds like an educated man not a million miles away from Drummond himself, is contemplating the passing of daytime and nighttime over a landscape and feeling desolate and despairing. And that's about it. And because he is looking at the same features of the landscape and the sky and circling round and round the same thoughts and the same emotional territory, the Sestina is the perfect form for doing this. But, you know, in spite of my efforts to get as close as possible to the original, pure source of the Sestina, when we look a little closer at Drummond's poem, we can see that this is not a pure Sestina because the end words actually rhyme. Stars with wars, woods with floods, and night with light. And allowing for historical shifts in pronunciation and Drummond's Scottish accent, we can safely assume that stars and wars, woods and floods would have been full rhymes for him. So even this early on in the history of the Sestina, we find yet another poet bending the rules, playing variations on the form before it's even been properly established. Because, of course, there are no rules in poetry, only patterns, and poets love to play with patterns and see what effects emerge from them. While I was considering those end words, I remembered a comment Mimi Calvati made years ago when she taught the Sestina, which is that quite often there is one word out of the six that doesn't seem to fit with the others. For example, in a Sestina by Elizabeth Bishop, the end words are house, grandmother, child, stove, almanac, and tears. So which word jumps out of that list? House, grandmother, child, stove, almanac, and tears. It's almanac, isn't it? All the others belong to the same imaginative world, a cosy domestic scene with a child and its grandmother warming themselves by a stove. Tears does add a strong element of pathos, but it doesn't stick out like a sore thumb the way Almanac does. <laughs> I mean, if you were given the task of writing a Sestina based on those six words, that's the word you'd balk at, isn't it? It would be fairly easy to conjure up a story using the words house, grandmother, child, stove and tears, but then your eye would light on Almanac and you'd think, really? Do I have to? 
Of course, Bishop had the skill to carry it off without it sounding strained, and it helps to mark the poem out as unmistakably hers. OK, let's play the same game with Drummond's Sestina. Here are the end words. Which one sticks out? Stars, woods, wars, floods, night and light. It's wars, isn't it? You know, it's easy enough to describe a country landscape using stars, woods, floods, night and light. But where do the wars fit in? They don't, do they? The pastoral was associated with peace and order in Renaissance literature, and wars disrupt this peace. And of course, that's what the poem is about. A man surrounded by natural beauty, but who can't appreciate it because of the wars in his heart and mind. The heaven doth not contain so many stars. So many leaves not prostrate lie in woods when autumn's old and boreas sounds his wars. So many waves have not the ocean floods as my rent mind hath torments all the night and heart spends sighs when Phoebus brings the light. So he's basically saying that nature does not contain so many wonders as the torments of his rent mind, his torn mind, and the sighs of his heart. Now, it might be tempting to look at the historical context and see if there were any specific wars going on at the time that Drummond might be referencing in the poem, but I think it's pretty clear that the wars he's talking about are figurative, states of mind rather than warring states. Mostly, the word wars suggests some kind of personal anguish, such as love and fortune's wars, uncivil wars twixt sense and reason's light, and the intestine wars of care, i.e. the wars of sorrow. There are also references to war in the natural world, with Boreas, the god of wind, sounding his wars at the end of autumn, heralding the approach of winter. And later on, we have the elements renew their ancient wars. So the conflict isn't restricted to the speaker's own love and fortune. The poem also locates it in the natural seasons and the elements. The word wars insinuates itself into the pastoral landscape like the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And Drummond uses all the tools at his disposal, including classical references, atmospheric description, and rhetorical exaggeration to paint his picture of misery. The heaven doth not contain so many stars, so many leaves not prostrate lie in woods, when autumn's old and boreas sounds his wars. So many waves have not the ocean floods as my rent mind hath torments all the night and heart spends sighs when Phoebus brings the light. So, according to Drummond's logic, all the wonders of nature are not only negated by his misery, the more numerous and wonderful they are, the more they go to prove how much more miserable he is. And if you have ever suffered from melancholy, 
or try to cheer up someone else who's suffering from it, you will recognise this as a very accurate depiction of the kind of thinking it produces. And this pattern of evoking pastoral imagery only to negate it and twist it into proof of his unhappiness continues in the second stanza. Why should I have been partner of the light, who, crossed in birth by bad aspect of stars, have never since had happy day or night? Why was I not a liver in the woods, or citizen of Thetis crystal floods, than made a man for love and fortune's wars? In other words, why should I have been born only to be born under an unlucky star, never to have had a single happy day or night? And why wasn't I born a creature of the woods or the seas, i.e. some kind of bird or beast or fish, instead of made a man who is subject to love and fortune's wars? And he carries on in the same vein throughout the poem, lamenting his fate with a combination of gorgeous natural imagery and convoluted syntax, peppered with references to classical gods, Boreas, Thetis, Phoebus and Cynthia. So it's very much highbrow moaning. And it's not particularly obvious what he's moaning about we could cite circumstantial evidence, which is that, generally, this kind of melancholic pose was adopted at the time by disappointed male lovers. And the fourth stanza does seem to support this hypothesis, although if you blink, you might miss the evidence. With watchful eyes I ne'er behold the night, mother of peace, but ah, to me of wars, and Cynthia, queen-like, shining through the woods, when straight those lamps come in my thought, whose light my judgment dazzled, passing brightest stars, and then mine eyes enile themselves with floods. Cynthia was another name for Artemis, the ancient Greek goddess of the moon. So what he's saying here is that I can never behold the night and the moon shining through the woods without those lamps coming into my mind, whose light my judgment dazzled, brighter than the stars, and then my eyes are flooded with tears. So I'm guessing these lamps are the eyes of a mysterious beloved. Because as we know by now, courtly love poets are always comparing their ladies' eyes to stars. So this seems to be a pretty oblique and romanticised and classicised reference to some kind of encounter with a lady who dazzled the speaker but didn't hang around. And I guess your enjoyment of this poem or maybe your patience with it, will depend on to what extent you share the 17th century taste for elegantly expressed melancholy. Personally, I find it quite congenial, but hopefully we can at least agree that Drummond has done a superb job within the conventions of the genre. It doesn't really go anywhere. The speaker is just as depressed at the end of the poem as he was at the beginning, but that's kind of the point of the Sestina. There's no escape. You're stuck with those six N-words and doomed to repeat them 
ad nauseum. And circling back to Terence Hayes and his DIY sestinas, we can now see that his self-conscious artistry, extending the technical challenge in his words to make the obsessiveness somewhat ridiculous even, is part and parcel of the Sestina tradition, of taking the complex and making it even more complex. As Danielle probably did with a folk song, and as Woodville, Spencer, Sidney and Drummond did in their turn. So one aspect of Terence's innovation is really a new phase of a very old tradition. But the DIY element also gives it an unusual twist because he's taking a form that was originally competitive and exclusive, a test of skill and a poet's poem, and made it democratic and inviting, giving us the words and inviting us to join the dance. Drummond, I think it's clear, was at the other end of the spectrum, an ivory tower poet who literally lived in a tower, his ancestral home of Hawthornden Castle. But there's plenty of room for both types of poem in a form as capacious and flexible as the Sestina. And Ben Jonson may have drunk all of Drummond's wine, but fortunately his poems survive, so let's have another listen to Sextain and savour its vintage melancholy. Sextain by William Drummond of Hawthornden the heaven doth not contain so many stars, So many leaves not prostrate lie in woods, When autumn's old and boreas sounds his wars. So many waves have not the ocean floods, As my rent mind hath torments all the night, And heart spends sighs when Phoebus brings the light. Why should I have been partner of the light, who, crossed in birth by bad aspect of stars, have never since had happy day or night? Why was I not a liver in the woods, or citizen of Thetis' crystal floods, than made a man for love and fortune's wars? I look each day when death should end the wars, uncivil wars, twixt sense and reason's light. My pains I count to mountains, meads and floods, and of my sorrow partners make the stars. All desolate I haunt the fearful woods, when I should give myself to rest at night. With watchful eyes I ne'er behold the night, Mother of peace, but ah, to me, of wars, And Cynthia, queen-like, shining through the woods, When straight those lamps come in my thought, Whose light my judgment dazzled, Passing brightest stars, And then mine eyes enile themselves with floods. 
Turn to their springs again, first shall the floods. Clear shall the sun, the sad and gloomy night. To dance about the pole, cease shall the stars. The elements renew their ancient wars shall first, and be deprived of place and light, ere I find rest in city, fields, or woods. End these my days, in dwellers of the woods. Take this my life, ye deep and raging floods. Sun, never rise to clear me with thy light. Horror and darkness keep a lasting night. Consume me, care, with thy intestine wars, and stay your influence o'er me, bright stars. In vain the stars, in dwellers of the woods, care, horror, wars I call, and raging floods, for all have sworn no night shall dim my sight. William Drummond of Hawthornden was a Scottish poet and the first laird of Hawthornden, who was born in 1585 and died in 1649. He studied at the University of Edinburgh and later travelled through Europe, gaining exposure to the intellectual currents of his time. The title of the volume of poems he published in 1616 gives a good indication of their style and mood. Poems, amorous, funeral, divine, pastoral, in sonnets, songs, sextains, madrigals. His prose writings include history and philosophy. Drummond's home, Hawthornden Castle, containing his extensive library, became a literary haven, with Ben Jonson his most famous guest. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. A new episode is released every month. If you enjoy the show and you would like to help me connect more poets with listeners and readers, you can contribute to the show's production costs at amouthfulofair.fm slash support. You can also support our poets and publishers as well as the podcast – by buying their books in the A Mouthful of Air bookshop at amouthfulofair.fm slash bookshop. And if you would like a full transcript of every episode sent to you via email, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative with music by Javier Weyler, 
sound production by Breaking Waves, and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem. <laughs>